HSC, what do you like to do? Running. Running? Eat chocolate. Eat chocolate. Burning session. Burning session? Yeah. Oh, what do you burn? Books. Books? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, um, we're going to see what Jesus does uh, when he finishes work. And um, before we do that, uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can gather in this place. We thank you that you're God who speaks to us today. I uh, thank you that your spirit uh, speaks throughout all time. And uh, we do ask that as we come to your word, that your spirit will be speaking to us right now, convicting us, changing us, and showing us how glorious our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is. Amen. Well, Kate likes to run. But uh, we've actually done a whole lot of sitting around, haven't we, with lockdown? Whether it's in front of Netflix, in front of computer screens, studying. Uh, maybe in the coming months, a bunch of you will do heaps of sitting down on headers and chaser bins. I love to sit down after a busy day of work with a cold beverage to quench my thirst, which momentarily stops my old man groaning from an ageing body. And in the book of Hebrews, Jesus too does a whole heap of sitting down after his work. Chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter 8, we have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In our passage tonight in chapter 10, verse 12, but this man after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So sit down, to be like Jesus, it's a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, this image of sitting down is actually really fantastic and amazing news for us because Jesus has finished his work, his work of atonement, of paying for human sin, of paying for your sin. He sits down because the job is done. And this is in stark contrast to the human priests of the Old Testament, um, of Old Testament Israel, who stood day after day after day offering endless sacrifices. Those priests could never sit down because their work was never completed. Their work was not perfect. So tonight, as we come to an end of a section in this book of Hebrews, uh, this section that's all about Jesus, our great and eternal high priest, Starts from halfway through chapter 4, right through halfway through chapter 10, where we end tonight. In that section, all about the high priestly work of Jesus, we're going to see how Jesus is better than the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle ministry, and the sacrifices that happen in that tabernacle, because all those things were just the shadow of the reality. We'll see what Jesus' sitting down actually means for us. And hopefully we'll see that this really is the best news that you could possibly hear. Because everything in this life, and the mere possibility of life after death, is inextricably connected to Jesus sitting down as he came to do God's will. Well, um, come and join me at chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles there, that'd be great. Uh, chapter 9 is on the outlines as well, so you can follow along on the back page there. Now, in chapter 9, the first 10 verses are all about the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
If you're here earlier in the year when it went through Leviticus, I'm hoping that a lot of this might have sounded familiar to you. Hopefully you've remembered that. Um, we deliberately did this so that we looked at old, um, Leviticus in the Old Testament uh, as the background for this study, this series in Hebrews now. So, uh, in those verses, verses 1 to 10, um, we, meet, we, we see the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is this movable tent that was built. It doesn't really look that movable at the moment, but they actually did pack it all down and move it around all over the place. Um, it was built under Moses' leadership. And so you've got the outer courtyard here um, where sacrifices took place. Um, the Jews would bring their animals in there. The priests would sacrifice them. Then inside the, the tent here, you've got two rooms. The most holy place, uh, so the holy place first. Um, have a look in Hebrews with me, chapter 9, verse 2. A tabernacle was set up, and in this first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Okay, so there are a few items in there, in that holy place. Um, the priests were allowed to go in and out of there, but not the, the regular people. And then inside that tent was the most holy place. And uh, we can read about those in verse 3 to 5. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Uh, a bit of detail, a good bit of detail, I reckon. Um, but there in the most holy place um, is, uh, is this bit in the middle here, the mercy seat. We see that referred to there in verse 5. And that is really at the heart of that whole tabernacle structure. Because in that mercy seat is the place of atonement. That's where the action happens, the meeting place between the holy God and an unholy people. And so for all of this to function, they need priests. And we see about the priests there in verses 6 and 7. With things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room. He does it only once a year and never without blood. So daily the priest would go in and out of the first room, but only once a year would the high priest be allowed to go into that most holy place. Now all of this tabernacle ministry, all this stuff that we, we see happening here in these first seven verse, verses, they all speak about God's grace. His word to them inscribed in the stone tablets that were inside the Ark of the Covenant along with the manna and Aaron's budding staff, they spoke of God's providential care for them as they wandered in the desert. The lampstand and the loaves of bread spoke of his presence. And the mercy seat on top of the ark, well, that is a powerful word of forgiveness. The first covenant with its tabernacle and its priestly service was a powerful word of grace from God. They are good things that God has given to remind the people of, of who he is, uh, of his love for them. But they were only temporary symbols. 
And in fact, they, they were warning signs not to approach God lackadaisically. There's a big warning sign, a barrier. Don't come in here or you will die. You might remember people dying when they came too close and did the wrong things when we looked at Leviticus. The tabernacle, the priests and the sacrifices were God's grace, but they were really only a shifting shadow of what was to come. And so in verses 8 to 10, uh, read with me there, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the real, most holy place in the heavens had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. And so this tabernacle, this first tabernacle, was a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. So you can see there in verse 9 that this earthly tabernacle was a symbol of the genuine heavenly tabernacle. If you cast your eyes down to verse 23, it was a copy of what's in heaven. Verse 24, a model of the true heavenly tabernacle. In chapter 10, verse 1, in chapter 8, verse 5, they are a shadow of the reality. They're real things in and of themselves, but they're really only a shadow, a symbol, a copy of the real deal. Now, it makes sense, doesn't it, that the shadow or the symbol is not as good as the real deal. Nobody thinks that meeting on Zoom is better than meeting in person. Nobody thinks, oh, I'd rather kiss this FaceTime image of my girlfriend rather than kiss her in real life. No one would think, well, no, no. yeah, let's leave it there. <laughs> when, when restrictions got lifted earlier this week, you all met with people face to face, didn't you? And you were looking forward to it. The shadow, the symbol, the copy is not as good as the real thing. The old way of the first covenant, all of the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices were old. They were the shadow. The reality is Jesus Christ himself. And you can see in verse 9 that they couldn't perfect the worshipper's conscience. They were ineffective in doing that. In verse 10, it could wash them on the outside. They'd be ceremonially clean, and so they could uh, go into that courtyard of the tabernacle. They could go and offer their sacrifices. But their conscience, their inner moral compass was broken and they stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. So the old way could make them ceremonially clean, but not wash them on the inside. So they needed the reality. They needed what was real rather than the shadow itself. They needed God's full and coming grace, not just these symbols of his grace. And so in verse 11, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who were defiled, sanctify the purification of the flesh, 
talking about the external washings there. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Now, the logic of these verses goes like this. Jesus is the real deal high priest who entered the real throne room of God and used his own blood as the sacrifice. And how much better is that? The old way of the animal sacrifices only cleaned people externally, but Jesus cleans people internally. He cleans our consciences so we no longer stand guilty and condemned before God. We are redeemed eternally. Verse 12. So this comparison between Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice and the ceaseless ministry of the priests keeps coming up for the rest of this section, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 18. It is such an important thing, this comparison between Jesus and the other priests. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, Jesus would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. The comparison. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 as well. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshippers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshippers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? We see here Jesus is the better priest. He is the better sacrifice. He is the real deal and offered himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And so in him, because he is the reality, we find God's full and extravagant grace that all of those Old Testament things looked forward to. Jesus is God's word in the flesh, not written on stone templates. Jesus enters into God's full presence, not just represented by a candelabra or a little room in a tent. And what Jesus actually does is he brings God's presence to all people, not just to one person once a year. But in order to enjoy the benefits of forgiveness and eternal life with God, Blood must be shed. And so, verses 15 to 22 of chapter 9 is all about the necessity of blood for forgiveness to be possible. Death needs to take place. So have a look, chapter 9, verse 22. It's pretty clear here. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. An illustration of a human will is used in verses 16 and 17 to prove this point. That someone needs to die 
in order for a will or a covenant, um, a will or a covenant, they're the same word in the Greek, someone needs to die in order for a will to take effect. Now, when my grandmother died um, uh, last year, about, about this time last year, uh, she had to die in order for her will to be put into effect. That's just the way it happens. And so what is being said here in Hebrews is that blood is needed, death needs to happen in order for the new covenant to be established. And so the point is that for you and I to be forgiven, someone needs to die. It can't be an animal. Chapter 10, verse 4 says it's impossible for their blood to pay for our sin. It can't be our own blood because we're already guilty and condemned. We can't purify ourselves because our own blood is, is tainted. It can't be the person next to you because they've got their own sin problems to deal with. They're just as guilty as you are. And that's a huge relief, isn't it? Or I'm looking around at who's going to be my sacrifice. And so... Because animals can't do it, I can't do it, other people can't do it for me. We need the blood of a perfect human to inaugurate this new covenant. Someone who is already clean inside and out. We need that person to be our blood sacrifice. We need that person so that we might be forgiven. We need a body. Now that does quite sound quite a bit Macabre, doesn't it? We need a body. But fortunately, Psalm 40 speaks of such a body. Not an animal sacrifice, not a grain offering, but a human body. A person who willingly offers their blood and their life to take away sin. So have a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Uh, it quotes uh, Psalm 40 here. And I think this is actually quite fascinating as we look at these verses because... Uh, the author of Hebrews puts King David's words from the Old Testament in the Psalms in Jesus' mouth. Well, more accurately, David speaks the words that Jesus gave him hundreds of years before he was born. But anyway, that might do your head in. <laughs> um, Hebrews 10 verse 5, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, as Jesus was coming into the world, he said quoting Psalm 40, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, through the mouth of David. You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, God. Now, What's going on? How does, how does this all work? We see in these verses that the sacrificial system was limited. God didn't delight in it, in the, the burnt offerings and the sin offerings, because it was not perfect. And it was always anticipating and expecting a body. You prepared a body for me. A person. Someone who would come to do God's will. Not their own will, but God's will. And by doing that, they would bring forgiveness. Now, does that sound familiar? Someone who came along and said, 
I have come to do your will, Lord, not my will. Now, it's certainly not sheep, because they don't talk, do they? I mean, have you heard sheep talk? I hope not. Um, we don't hear sheep say, I have come to do your will, God, because no animals can do that. Jesus has come to be the sacrifice, to be a willing sacrifice, to do God's will. And in doing that, he has done away with the old sacrificial system. So, after that is quoted in Hebrews, have a look in verse 8 with me. After he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, or the Old Testament sacrificial system, to establish the second. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. There's our body, his body, his life and his blood for our forgiveness. And the fact that a life of another needs to be given in order to be forgiven reveals the monstrous gravity of sin. Just let that sit with you for a moment. Your sin requires the death, either of you or of somebody else. There is nothing else that can make us right with God apart from Jesus' blood. Without his body, without his blood, we all stand condemned before this holy God. Chapter 9, verse 27 exhibits the solemnity of this. Just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this face judgment. Death ushers us before the judgment seat of God. When we die, that happens to all of us. And without a body, without blood to remove our sin, we are cast out from God's presence and we're excluded from the joy and treasures of eternal life with him. We bear the punishment of our own sin for all eternity. It's what happens after we die. And friends, this is where Jesus sitting down is such good news for us. Sin is a big deal. But so is the depth of God's love. As Jesus willingly gives his very life to pay for our sin. And as he is resurrected to life three days later and ascends into the heavens where he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty, it means that his work of atonement is done. The priest has sat down. So chapter 10 verse 11 says, Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. Man, that sounds tedious, doesn't it? Does it sound like your work sometimes? I know it sounds like mine. Mowing lawns, washing, things just never end. But the work of these priests, that can't take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
What good news is that, eh? Jesus can sit down. Do you know that there was no chair? Did you notice there was no chair in the, the Old Testament tabernacle? It's because the priest could never sit down. Their work was never ending. But this priest, Jesus, our great and eternal high priest, well, he sat down on the mercy seat as the blood sacrifice. And as he rose to life again, he won the right to sit on the heavenly throne of grace. And we can now boldly approach God to receive mercy and help. I wonder if you notice that little connection there between chapter 9, verse 5, the mercy seat, and in previous places where it talks about the throne of grace. A very similar idea, it's the same thing. The mercy seat where atonement happens is the same throne of grace that we can approach through Jesus. And so because God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice, and forgiveness is real, it means that no matter what we have done, no matter what sin we might currently be struggling with, we have no need to hide from God. And we can find help and forgiveness when we ask Him. Because the blood of Jesus washes us clean through and through. His sitting is my sanctification. Chapter 10, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, that his body brings us sanctification. In verse 14 in chapter 10, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. We are made holy in God's sight. That's what being sanctified means, being made holy. When God looks at you, he sees holiness because he's looking at you through the blood of Jesus. We're washed on the inside. Our consciences are clean by the body and the blood of Jesus. And we trust him for the forgiveness of our sin. Sometimes we try many things to make our conscience clean, to make sacrifices, to make me more holy, to soothe my guilty conscience. When we think it appeases God, we might try and change our behaviour and make New Year's resolutions in order to make a fresh start. Oh, that'll, that'll make me feel better, that'll appease God, won't it? We might ease our guilty conscience by spending time in prayer. I feel really bad and so I'm going to you know, spend all this time in prayer that will make me feel even more holy. Maybe we make ourselves feel better by doing lots of good works. Giving away money, helping people when they're in need, even regularly attending church because that'll make God happy. That'll make me feel better. We might even feel more holy with a new record of not sinning. Like, you know, oh, so great, I haven't watched porn in two months. Yes. But friends, it's only Jesus' sacrifice that can make us holy that can sanctify us. No amount of contrition, no amount of changed behaviour, no amount of good deeds can ever bring forgiveness because it takes blood. It costs life. Which is why we need Jesus. 
And as we confess our sin to him, he will wash us as white as snow. He will take our sin as far as the east is from the west. Or because he has sat down. But his work isn't quite over. The work of atonement is absolutely, there's no longer any need for a sin offering. But there's one thing left for Jesus still to do. I wonder if you saw that in there in verse 13. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. He sat down, but he still yet to put his feet up. And so until that day, until the day Jesus puts his feet up, forgiveness is available. For you, for your friends, for your family, for this campus, for this city, for the world. Jesus hasn't crushed all of his enemies yet, but he will one day. So I wonder, who might you speak to to tell of this wonderful news of the priest who sat down? Until that day, when Jesus puts his feet on the footstool, what do we do in the meantime, in the here and now? Well, forgiveness is available, so we want to tell people about that. We also serve the living God, chapter 9, verse 14. The kind of service there that we are cleaned to do and freed to do is the kind of service that's associated with temple duties. It's a religious word. It's, it's worship. Until the day Jesus returns, we worship God in all that we do. Not just on Sundays, but 24-7. With free consciences. We live lives 24-7 of gratitude and praise to him who loves us so dearly. Until that day, we want to tell people of this forgiveness. We serve the true and living God. And until that day he returns, we also have great assurance. That's what verses 15 to 18 are all about in chapter 10. The Holy Spirit that he has poured out on all his people under the new covenant in the blood of Jesus testifies to us. Do you see that in verse 15? The Holy Spirit testifies to us about this. His law is now on our hearts and in our minds. We have an internal awareness and assurance of the truth of all of this, that God will remember our sins no more. What a wonderful blessing that is. In the words of Psalm 40, the Lord is great. I love sitting down after a hard day's work. Doesn't it feel so good when the job is done? When you can burn all of your HSC stuff? But I love even more that Jesus has sat down because he has done the work that I could never do. The work that you could never do. Because Jesus sits, you and I can stand in the presence of the Holy God and we can approach his throne of grace with great confidence knowing that if we die tonight, God will welcome us into his great inheritance with joy. And what a great inheritance that will be, living with God himself and his people for all eternity. 
Do you have that assurance? Because it can be yours because our great and eternal priest has sat down. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Are you waiting for Jesus? And the salvation that he brings. Uh, friends, we're going to sing as a reflection and response to God's word to us tonight. So Musos, why don't you come up? Uh, we'll have a question time afterwards, but we'll have a pause so that we can reflect on this. And uh, you might note in the third verse of this song, these words. No fate I dread, I know that I am forgiven. It's the Holy Spirit testifying to us. The future is sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. Let's reflect on these words in song.